welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. For series four of the podcast, I talk to a variety of professionals about specific topics relevant to solo parenthood where they have an expertise. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, it's an honour to be here, Mel. Thanks for the invitation. Would you like to start just by giving yourself a little bit of an introduction? Hmm. Um, I think whenever people ask me, they're like, oh, should I say that I'm a mum first or should I say I'm a sex educator and occupational therapist? But both those things feel equally important to me because of the work I do. I support uh, parents or other adults raising children to have conversations about sensitive stuff like sex and bodies and puberty and all those things but in a way that builds deeper connection because at the end of the day what seems to be universal um, is that we all want to stay connected and be available to the child or children we are raising in whatever way we can and usually people are talking about they want to be there for their child so they have an easier time of growing up than maybe we did, um, particularly around this sensitive stuff. And what made you get into this? How did you sort of get into the topic? It's maybe like your work, actually, personal experience. I have very strong memories. Um, For me, one of the strongest memories was being 11. I was 11. Um, I grew up in a very loving family. Both my parents were missionaries and they had been raised in like significant religious churches Mm. and so we didn't have a lot of open conversations about bodies and sex and all those sort of things so mum was a nurse and dad absolutely tried to use the correct words but I think it was just something like I didn't get the message that I could come to them with things to do with growing up on my body and this particular evening I'm sort of lying in bed waiting to go to sleep and I think I notice I'm only growing one boob you know and it's like all of a sudden I'm like oh no, I'm, def- I'm deformed. And I felt so alone in that moment and so unsure of what to do. And because our family was religious, I prayed to God and said, if you could please just allow me to grow two breasts of roughly the same size, I will always be good. Now, of course, who can promise to always be good? I definitely wasn't always good, but I do, did manage to grow two breasts roughly the same size. So it was going back and thinking about Sarah back then and how worried and without the information and without the really clear connection and permission to go to the adults who loved and cared for me and did the absolute best they could like but still I wasn't sure so it's really about addressing those sort of experiences that maybe most of us will have had in the past and learning new ways to build sort of the culture of openness and natural conversations inside families. That's really the crux of the mission and why I do what I do. And it's so, it's so nice. I, I do agree. It's a similar story to mine in terms of it's so nice to be able to do something that you're so passionate about and that, mm. you know, is, is meaningful for you. So that's mm. amazing. Um, so the reason that I am connected with you is because 
because um, my community is people who are considering solo motherhood or those who are solo mums, um, one of the things, one of the parts of that journey is talking to our children about their conception. And um, I do find that it's a subject that lots of people are nervous about. And um, myself included, you know, at the beginning, mm. it's, it's unfamiliar territory. You, you don't want to get it wrong. You want to make sure that you aren't impacting your child and that you, you know, supporting them so um and when I saw you speak I thought oh it would be amazing to have a conversation because I think um I would love to help um solo mums become more confident to talk to their mm. children and what the right thing to say is mm. so um I think one of the things is that probably we have to talk to our children a bit earlier than maybe other people do, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it's then just saying, right, age appropriate, what's the right thing to say? So mm. I suppose my first question is, I don't know if you have a view on this, but why do we get so anxious? Where has this come from? Why are we so scared about talking about some of these things? Do you know? Mm. It seems to be from my experience that our, our nervous system, so we all have a nervous system and its job is to essentially keep us alive and keep us safe, right? And the nervous system gets the rules about how to stay alive and how to stay safe from our past experience. And so most of us will have at some point in our growing up, and we could have been really young and we may not even remember this, have had an experience where we might have innocently asked a question about you know, what's that pointing to someone's penis or, um, or look at this part of my body showing our vulva to our mum. And the adult who we trusted will have, not on purpose, had some sort of reaction that isn't um, information that, oh, yeah, this is a great question. I'm so glad you asked. It will be something like their face might have fallen a bit or they might have looked a little bit afraid because they probably were worried about like, oh, how am I going to do this? Or maybe like in our time of growing up, children shouldn't ask questions like that, yeah. right? So, and it won't just be one experience. We will have had multiple experiences and maybe not even about conversations that are actually being had in an awkward way, but the absence of conversations about particular body parts or how a baby's made. Like if you think about parenting, how many conversations do we have about road safety and don't run beside the pool and please eat your peas with a spoon and sit up to the table, you know, repetition, 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 mm. right? But our nervous system will cop when there's an absence of conversation too. Mm. So it learns that, oh, we shouldn't go there something about that that is a little bit weird and it won't be conscious it will be subconscious so this is our nervous system taking the rules that it's been given from our past and applying them in the only way that it knows how and it doesn't realize that we're adults now actually and we have a responsibility to build connection with our child or children about this specific topic so it's sort of a blunt instrument but it absolutely impacts how easy these conversations are and it's so um, interesting you say that actually because one of the things that i did and one of the things i advise other people to do is start talking to their child literally from when they're a baby and it's not for their child's benefit it's for their own benefit so for me i feel super confident about talking about this now but i didn't um and 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 actually i practiced when my daughter couldn't understand what i was saying mm. but i practiced it and and then i felt more and more confident and now she can understand and 
she asked more questions. If I'd only started for the first time, I think it would have been harder. So that's definitely why I suggest people start really young on this. Yes. And you know what, like what you've done there is you've reprogrammed your nervous system because you've given it time and time and time again, examples of saying the world vagina or vulva and the world hasn't come to an end and no one has told you off. Right. So what you've essentially done is give your nervous system new rules to live by. Yeah. It didn't, it's so funny. We were having conversations about this with some friends and, um, you know, if, if he, and it's what you said, it's the unconscious reaction. It's the faces when you say vagina, they're like, Oh, <laughs> you know, it's exactly. So it is like repro ourselves to know that that it's fine to say these words mm. um so for people who are anxious um about having these conversations is there any general sort of tips that you would you would give well you've given the first one which is essentially start as early as you can like that this idea of changing our newborn's nappy and looking at their genitals because like wildly, we become responsible for another person's genitals when we have a baby, right? And so how could we practice using vulva, penis, whatever that accurate anatomical word is to get our nervous system used to doing it? Yeah. And um, if you have a friend or a trusted like ally or even like a solo mum coach, for example, find a community of people who you feel safe enough to practice these micro steps. So learning the words is one micro step. Giving yourself permission to do it early, another micro step. Um, understanding that by modeling to our child that we say these words and we talk about these things builds permission in them to talk to us about these things too. So that's three micro steps. And they all sort of come together to build more of a confidence and a sense of, yes, I am doing the right thing. Yeah. And can you explain a little bit about why it's so important that we use the right words? So this idea of using correct anatomical terms doesn't mean that we don't use slang. It means that we teach our child that there are some words that are appropriate for some parts of life and there are other words appropriate for other parts of life. Just like we teach them that there are um, behaviours for sitting in a restaurant and there are behaviours for going to the swimming pool. Now, those are two different things. So, so what do we do when we sit in a restaurant? When we sit, we don't run around because people are bringing food. We talk in a voice that's reasonably soft so we don't um, disturb other diners when we're at the pool. Uh, we're allowed to wear just a little bathing suit and we're allowed to talk way more loudly and jump in the water, right? So two different examples of two different behaviors. Same thing with our, our genitals or our private parts, whatever words you like to use. And you notice that I say that, right? Genitals or private parts, mm. because some of us if I spent the whole time on this podcast using word vulva, vagina, penis, scrotum, your nervous system would probably, every time I said it, go, ooh, ooh, right? So there's, it's perfectly fine to ease ourselves into this process and use private parts with our kids. And we can say, you know what? 
I've just learnt that there are so many different words people use for their genitals or their vulva. And you can even play a little game around, you know, what, what words do you know? Like some people over here in Ireland, I'm, I'm Australian, but I live, lived in Ireland 20 years. A lot of people call their vulva their Mary, you know, or all sorts of other little things. So right. that's one note. But the second note is that children who have accurate names for their body there's a confidence that comes with that Mm. and particularly in a world where a lot of other children won't have that confidence and it gives them a sense of sort of ownership of their body Um, it also is an indication to anyone who might have sort of ulterior motives around our child that hang on a minute Someone is looking after this child. Someone is speaking to this child. Someone is empowering this child with language and information. And unfortunately, our world is a, is a broken place. And mm-hmm. so the more we can give our child the confidence and the information that sends out a signal that this child is not an easy pushover, the better off it is. So there's a protective element to language as well. And um, I think... I mean, I'm sure probably any mum will say this as well, but as a solo mum, I, you know, Daisy is with me all the time. So, you know, there's, there's, there's not really any privacy. <laughs> um, so the latest thing that she's saying to me is, um, mummy, why do you sometimes do red poos? <laughs> Which obviously I don't do red poos, by the way. Um, <laughs> just to clarify. Um, but she is in the bathroom with me when I'm on my period mm. and um, yeah. she wants to know about it. Now, I honestly haven't got the fuckiest of where to start mm trying to explain to a three-year-old and I've tried to be really open um, about it but also that you know I don't want to scare her um, mm. you know what what advice have you got just in terms of you know how much to say in an age-appropriate way it's such a great question um, so let's think about other things that we feel really open about talking with our children to do with body functions so I would suggest that we all feel pretty open talking to them about poop and we, right? And we don't come to that with a sense of like, oh, we don't want to scare them about poop or we, right? So it's like, again, it's, it's okay because our culture has told us be very quiet. Don't talk about periods. Nobody wants to hear about that. You keep that to yourself, keep it silent. So it's a more of a mindset thing of going, you know what? This is just like anything else. So you could say, If she asks you, why do you do red poop? You can actually say, well, actually, this is really special, good, exciting blood. And it helps people grow babies. It's super special. And you could even add in one day, you know, hopefully you will be able to do that too, right? And, and, you know, because there's no shame. There's no, there's no nothing. It's great. And okay, so some children who are particularly maybe, anxious around body fluids or body things might feel a little bit anxious about it and we you know we can talk to them about that there as there is some blood that happens or comes out of our body because we get hurt like so if you fall over what happens oh yeah blood comes out of my knee exactly but do you know that this blood is so magical it shows me that my body is super healthy and it's one of the ingredients that I would need if I was going to grow another baby. In fact, that blood helped me grow you. Wow. Right? 
it's it's so interesting because um at, at the beginning when you were saying about you know where does some of this um anxiety come from I definitely remember and if my mum's listening to this no no shaming on my mum but mm. um I asking her about it and her saying that she would tell me when I'm old enough to understand um and so yeah it's just embedded in my mind that um like that Daisy, I suppose, needs to be old enough to understand, whereas actually, if you just think about it the same as anything else you explain to a child, um, gosh, it just shows her, doesn't it, how mm. sort of deeply ingrained in, in us it is, which explains why it can be challenging. Yeah, and there's no shame about that. Like you said, there's no shame in what our, how, the way our parents did this for us. They did the best they could. And in the same way, there's no shame about the fact that our nervous system has adopted this thing. We didn't know it was doing the best we can. And as soon as we know different and we, we have awareness of, oh, I've developed that feeling and I didn't realize it was there, then we can move on and do something different. And it's really interesting because I feel like I've really um, embraced that in, in certain elements of talking to Daisy about her um, journey. But, but yeah, like periods, I haven't tackled that one. So that one's still on my mind. So it's what you say. It's about starting to practice that story so you feel really confident with it. Um, so I suppose for solo mums, one of the main things that we have to share or that we want to share with our children is around their conception um, because they won't have a father in their lives. And so we want to explain to them why that is, because if they look at other families, you know, we, we want to, to explain why some people have a daddy in their life and why, why we don't. So there's loads of really great books that help with this and I always recommend um, some of the key books that I use um, but there are some discrepancies in in some of the books and I think I, I definitely know the answer of what you're going to give me to one of my questions so some of the books um, say um, you need an egg from a lady and a seed from a man. Um, and I've started using sperm, no matter what the book says, just saying sperm. So would you yeah. agree that's what you would recommend as well? Absolutely. Because, um, I mean, it's like what we were going before about sort of euphemistic language. If we're using egg or ovum, whatever you prefer, then why are we treating the sperm or semen any differently? It's, all, it's almost like we might be bringing like our fear of, oh, my child is donor conceived and maybe it's donor sperm conception. And, and like, it, it may be just a little indicator of something going on in our mind. So absolutely, I, I, would, I, would, be a, a, I would vote for sperm or semen the whole way. <laughs> Brilliant. And then have you, have you got any other sort of like general advice on talking about conception in terms of different ages? Are there different things you should say at different ages? And, and how do you sort of tackle this subject? I love this question, Mel. Okay. And here's what's super interesting, right? Because this is a podcast for solo mums, but my answer would be the same no matter what podcast okay. I was on. And I'm going to tell you something really interesting about it. So say kids up to sort of the age of maybe four, four, about four, we talk on the level of, okay, we have an egg or an ovum and we have a sperm and those two things, we have to have those two things to create a new human. Now, I, my language is create a new human. You can sort of use whatever you want. Yeah. And I say in every new human, 
has to grow in a uterus. Now, I don't say whose uterus that was, right? Because there's so much diversity about whose uterus um, any child grows in. So yeah. I say, yeah, an egg and a sperm, and we need a uterus. That's the only place humans can grow. Yeah. But there are lots of different ways that the egg and sperm get together. Yeah. Right. And remember that this is the answer for everybody because our idea is that really good sex education, really inclusive conversations should be something that anyone can say. It doesn't okay. matter what our conception story is. Right. Yeah. And so then as our child maybe gets maybe towards six or if they're asking more or if they're not asking, then we introduce. So we can say, you know, do you know what? I don't think we've ever talked about how the sperm and eggs get together. There are three ways. It's super interesting. And um, I've realized that parents need to tell kids about it because it's really cool. Right. And then we would go through the three ways. So um, usually what I do is I start with um, IVF and I say, well, one of the ways that a sperm and an egg can get together is in with a special scientist and you bring the sperm and you bring, they bring the egg and they put them together. Um, and then when those two cells are ready, they get put into the uterus by the special scientist. Right. So that's one way. And, and I might say IVF or I might not, depending on what, you know, whatever you like. Yeah. Second way is artificial insemination. And I will describe how, you know, the egg is already there hanging around the uterus and so the special doctor or nurse will um, get the sperm and put it into the uterus um, so that it can find its way to an egg um, and that's done in a special doctor's room or whatever just whichever way you want to say that, yeah. that. and then I say and the third way is that um, sperms are made in testicles which is near near a penis right and eggs uh, sort of grow or live in the ovaries, which is near the uterus. And so sometimes sperm gets delivered to the uterus by the penis being welcomed into the vagina or whichever language you want to use. Because remember, there's, there's, there's interesting power differentials depending on how you want to do that. Um, a penis being welcomed into the vagina so that the sperm can swim from the end of the penis up into the uterus to try and find an egg. So those are three ways. Now, what I want to say before we leave this topic is it is extraordinary to me. Most families who have children conceived through intercourse are much more willing to have the IVF um, artificial <laughs> yeah. insemination story than the intercourse story. Yeah, and yeah. it's just it boggles my mind that it, depending on what our story is, we find different things complex because again we have judgments on these things. Are like maybe my story is less than, or their story is you know whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So it's another indicator that if we can look at what our worries or our fears or our awkwardness is around it will generally show that there's some sort of belief system something that our nervous system believes that is preventing us from traveling into that story it's 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 so true and it, and you know it's it's so clear that that's just not how we were spoken to it's not how it was delivered to us and mm. even though we're really aware that we want to do it differently you've got to unpick some of that I suppose haven't mm. you and I suppose yeah. it goes back to what we were talking about practice um mm. can really help with that 
Oh, so useful. So useful. Thank you so much for this. Um, I think the other question I've got is, I quite often get questions from my friend's children about Daisy, my, my daughter, because it's visible to them that their family setup is different to mine. And so at certain ages, they'll start to say, but has Daisy got a daddy or have you got a boyfriend or um, a husband? And how did you have a baby without a partner? What I find difficult is not telling them, <laughs> but is the reaction of the parents or the consent of the parents to give this level of information because it might not be what they would share. Um, have, have you come across that where, where other people are uncomfortable with what you're saying? This is one of the complexities of living in a world where conversations to do with conception and family structures are, are still maybe stigmatized or a little bit taboo, right? And that there are sort of rules about who gets to talk about it, right? So I think um, what you're describing is most adults who are raising a child or children will have in their head that these conversations should be done by me, their parent, and the world should back off until I get to it, right? right? And unfortunately, it's quite unrealistic. It's an unrealistic expectation to have because children who don't have information about things like, oh, like um, family diversity, for example, Children have scientists' minds. They will seek information and there's no stigma. They just want to know. Like, yeah. it's no big deal. So a child asking a question like that is a sign that that child doesn't have enough information, right? And it may be, and again, no shame, no blame, but the family or the adults that are raising them don't know that this early, often mantra of conversations about these topics is so important to build the foundation of connection around sensitive things right so already those of us who want to talk about things to do with sperms and eggs and all sorts of weird and wonderful and gorgeous connecting conversations we're a little bit different in our approach to the mainstream okay so that's the first thing to note what that means then is that we need to go okay so what is my priority when it comes to situations like this right so I would suggest, and in my parenting anyway, my priority has always been my child. Yeah. Because no one in the world cares for my child more than me. No one is going to have their interests at heart more than I am, right? So that's my absolute first priority. My second priority is then like the safety of the, the children around them. And then my third priority would be the adults. So what that means is, when a child asks me a question like that, who's not my child, I go, okay, what's the best thing for my kid here? And unfortunately, sometimes the best thing for your child is not the best thing for that child who's asking, yeah. right? So in this case, I have a story in my family where my child knew what condoms were and saw a used condom on the footpath coming home from school one day and told her friend, oh, yuck, look at that. And her friend said, what's yuck and my my daughter said oh, there's a used condom on the ground and her friend said what's well, a condom and then my daughter told her what a condom was right and there was fallout from that and that friendship wasn't sanctioned anymore sadly by the parent of that child so mm. in your situation i'd be thinking 
okay, you know what? The important thing for me is to maybe maintain my child's relationships with the people around them and to make sure that the families around us are comfortable because we're all, we're already dealing with stigmatized situation. And so you might say, do you know what? Conversations about mums and dads, you could say this to this little girl or this boy, whoever's asking, conversations about how babies are made. Do you know what? Parents love to do those conversations with their own kids. It's sort of like a special treat for the parent. So um, if you go home and ask your mum and and mum or ask your dad or ask your auntie Vera or whatever, like whatever their family structure is, um, they will be so happy you asked. And then my suggestion would be to, you know, that we overreact up if at all possible and get on the phone to that parent and just say, look, this is what's happened. Um, I know that conversations like this are super important and your child, if they're asking, that means they want information. Um, so I've suggested they go back and talk to you. If you would like me to also talk about that, I am so here for that. No problem at all. And I'm only suggesting this because, again, it comes back to who is the center of my universe? Who do I care for the most? My child. How can I ease them through this? Um, and, and I found certainly in my, in my work that that is absolutely the best way to do it. It's so true. One of the things that I've experienced is somebody asking me out of the blue where I'm not sort of prepared for it. But luckily, because I have practiced it so much, was able to answer it. And I think what I found is the most important, and it goes back to the safety of my child, is answering it with real confidence and positivity. Mm. Because if your child sees you answer with hesitation or apology, or then they'll think there's something wrong with it. Whereas I was really like, oh, this is completely normal. This, you know, you have, you've got to normalize it. You've got to make mm. it positive. You've got to be confident. Otherwise, they'll pick up on your tones, mm. as we talked about at the beginning, mm. I think is what I kind of found that sounds I, I love the way you're prioritizing your child Mel because you know at the end of the day what is more important than giving our child confidence that it doesn't matter what their family structure is it doesn't matter like for my kids it was about the fact they had a mum as a sex educator like I still have children that are embarrassed about that you know <laughs> and so we just do the best we can with it but how wonderful to have our kids at the center of every decision we make about this yeah, stuff. Definitely a good thing to always think back, what is best for my child when you're trying to decide how to do that. And I think it's just another reinforcement to, to practice. Um, and then the other thing that, um, and funny enough, I've just done this this morning because we've got some friends visiting this weekend and their children are of an age where I thought, and just because I was talking to you as well, I thought, hmm, I probably should have this conversation with them. And so that my close friends, I've prompted the conversation to say look this is what I tell my daughter are you happy for me to tell that to your child or is that going to conflict with with what you've told them or what you want me to tell them and funnily enough a lot of people are really happy to outsource me having the conversation for them and I'm more than willing to do that so that, that's fine but sort of double checking with people that you know have got children of an age that might ask is probably a good idea just to minimize any any drama around it, I guess. <laughs> and 
One of the benefits of being a person who can talk, um, and I've certainly experienced this in my parenting, uh, my, my kids now, I've got an almost 18-year-old, which I can't believe, an almost 16-year-old and a 13-and-a-half-year-old, is that when we show up and we have these conversations early, and in fact, we sort of, our reputation is that we speak about things, what happens is we become the go-to adult. And so there may be children in your future, Mel, friends of, of, of your daughter who come to you and tell you things or tell her things mm. and you hear back that their parents never find out about. And so while it may feel quite challenging when our children are very young to sort of run the gauntlet of um, having these conversations with the other adults in our, in our parenting community, I think eyes on the prize is what I always think about for the future. And sometimes we're in the thick and of nappies and sleep and, you know, like just trying to get through each day. But this reminder that these small changes that we can implement and these habits that we can put in place now, they have a long lasting positive impact on the connection we can build with our child and the permission, the very subtle or not so subtle permission that we are giving them that they can come to us and talk about anything at all. And if I can encourage anyone who's listening, who is sort of feeling like, Oh, I don't know if I'm up for the task of this because you know, it is countercultural. It is pushing back against the norm. Just remember that this is tiny little first steps that you are working out how to take for the long-term connection and the long-term benefit of the child or children in your care. I think that the sort of the biggest takeaway that I've had from this conversation is I just love the language and the tone that you use throughout and making things exciting, making them positive, making them a bit special. It, it's just, I really hope it just helps people with the positioning of things. And rather than being anxious about stuff, being able to sort of reposition stuff in a really nice way that our children feel like it's not a big issue. Because my experience again is, anything I've told my daughter, exactly what you said, she just takes it at face value. She just is like, oh, okay, thanks for telling me that information. It does overanalyze it all, like not our mm -hmm. children. So um, really great. Is there anything else that I've not asked you that you think would be useful to share for people? I think the main thing to remember is that we can start changing the culture in our home around these things with tiny little little changes right so you and i mel we're we're here on this podcast and there's a lot of confidence that we have because we've been doing this for a long time right but there will be others of us that our nervous system is still fully locked into the danger danger don't say anything because you know things things could kick off and go wild and it would be a threatening experience so Part of the way we start is to, first of all, notice that we feel anxious and rather than pushing ourselves to do it, just give ourselves compassion and find spaces where um, you can be fully accepted for who you are and the complexities that you feel around this topic, um, not made to feel guilty or less than or wrong because you have 
these feelings around um, talking about conception, whatever sort of conception story you have. Because what I found in my work is that people who feel under pressure, even under pressure from themselves, have a much harder time at finding the tiny little changes they can make, those tiny little steps that are going to make a difference in the long term. So um, my, my last message, I think, would be that kindness and self-compassion when it comes to this part of parenting is so important and so sort of kind to ourselves. And it certainly builds the basis for courageous action. And I think in our culture, we don't sort of put kindness and gentleness as a basis for courage, but absolutely in that, this aspect of our parenting, I cannot separate out those three things. And so um, I'm wishing kindness uh, and gentleness and courage to um, anyone on this call who wants to take the next step and isn't really sure what to do. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, so if there is anybody who is thinking I'm really struggling with this, I'm still feeling really nervous and not confident. It's a subject that I cover from a general point of view on my Preparing to Thrive coaching course and um, trying some of the general principles we've talked about getting people ready for having those conversations. Is there anywhere that I can signpost them to where you offer more advice on, on this subject? So I have a podcast called Sitting in a Car and it's a weekly pod. It's between 10 and sort of 16 minutes each episode and I focus on one real life question from a parent who's raising a real life child and what that does so the answers are can be useful sometimes but even if I'm talking about like how to answer a seven-year-old's question about uh, why did they see a naked person on the internet with their penis in someone else's mouth for example just as an example even if the answer to that question isn't relevant to the age your child is at now what it does is it gives your nervous system masses of opportunities to hear someone who's very confident and calm if i do say to myself about these things right and so I, my nervous system is sending it's okay it's okay it's okay messages to your nervous system whether you watch that on igtv or you're listening to it on whatever podcast platform right so it's a simple way to start giving your nervous system alternative messages of we can talk about this i'm listening to someone talk about this oh and the, the sky isn't falling down so um you can find out more about sitting in a car if you go over to my Instagram account, and I'm sure we'll link to that, I am Sarah Sproul. Um, but it's like doing small things every week, slowly and gently, and you will notice that your tolerance does start to build up. I mean, I can really vouch for that because I have binge watched quite a lot of your sitting in a car for that exact reason. Some of the topics aren't necessarily relevant, uh, but every topic is relevant because it just gives you more confidence to hear how you talk in general and how you tackle different subjects in general. So uh, yeah, I can definitely vouch that that's um, super useful for people. 
Well, thank you so much. It's been so fascinating. Um, it will personally be very helpful for me um, and I hope many others that are listening and give people the confidence to start having these conversations. So thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're so welcome, Mel. And can I just say that I love the work you're doing. Um, it's so important to have people out there who are sort of actively working to sort of push back stigma for anything to do with diversity related to families and and conception and i'm just so grateful that you're out in the world doing what you do oh thank you if you've enjoyed this episode of the stalk and i podcast i'd hugely appreciate if you rate review and subscribe i look forward to seeing you again next week